Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Clinical Appraisal, the show where we explore the primary scientific literature in nursing and the health sciences. This is Season 2, Episode 9, and I'm your host, Ian Lane. Clinical Appraisal is the first and only podcast dedicated exclusively to exploring measurement and methodology issues in nursing research and practice. If you like what I'm doing and have enjoyed the podcast so far, please rate and review the show on iTunes so that more people can access it. If you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. And finally, nothing I share on this podcast or any other episode constitutes medical advice. Everything presented here is for educational purposes only. With that preamble aside, I am excited to talk with you today about a paper published in January 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine by Brown et al., entitled Conservative versus Interventional Treatment for Spontaneous Pneumothorax. Many of you will already know what a spontaneous pneumo is, but for the list- those listening who may not know what this is, pneumothorax is air present between the visceral and parietal pleura. The parietal pleura lines the inner chest wall, and the visceral pleura lines the outer surface of the lung. So a pneumothorax can be seen in cases of blunt force trauma, as in, say, a stabbing or some such thing, some kind of a puncture. As just one example, a spontaneous pneumothorax is an event where there's been a spontaneous collapse of one of the lungs from no apparent traumatic cause, and of course, Air has become trapped in the pleural space and is compressing the lung, causing dyspnea or difficulty breathing. I enjoyed Knoppen's 2010 review in European Respiratory Review of Spontaneous Pneumothorax, and I would recommend that you go check it out. But to paraphrase that work, there are basically two types of spontaneous pneumothorax, primary and secondary. Secondary spontaneous pneumothorax may have many potential underlying causes, ranging from emphysema and pulmonary malignancies to interstitial lung diseases such as sarcoidosis and lymphangioleomyomatosis. Iatrogenic and other traumatic causes are among some of the others. Primary spontaneous pneumothorax, on the other hand, has no known or apparent underlying causes. The Knoppen paper does not mention incidents for secondary spontaneous pneumothorax, though the Brown article claims that about two-thirds of all cases of spontaneous pneumo are secondary in nature. And in the case of primary spontaneous pneumothorax, the incidence seems to be about eight cases per 100,000. Notably, that's an average of both genders, and the range is slightly different depending on sex, and consistently higher for males than for females. Although the exact pathophysiological basis of pneumothorax has long been debated in the literature, and as far as I can tell, it is still unclear today, there does seem to be some coalescing opinion on the topic as of late. So some recent publications, such as Weston and Kim's 2019 book chapter in the textbook Emergency General Surgery, has claimed that the cause of a spontaneous pneumo is, quote, always the rupture of a pulmonary bleb whether spontaneously or due to one of a myriad of other pulmonary ailments, some of which I've already talked about. Whether the cause, the treatments, 
uh, excuse me, whatever the cause, the treatments, as the chapter by Weston and Kim makes quite clear, has historically been the observation, aspiration, chest tube placement, uh, pleurodesis, and surgery. The choice of treatment is based on many factors, including but not limited to size, symptoms, and number of occurrences. This brings us to the topic of today's podcast. Whether to intervene on spontaneous pneumothorax or to manage these patients conservatively with a watch-and-wait approach. Interventional drainage via chest tube insertion appears, by and large, to be the very most common treatment modality for this condition. For this paper, Brown and colleagues conducted a multi-site, prospective, randomized, open-label, non-inferiority study at 39 hospitals across New Zealand and Australia. Just a reminder for those few people still listening at this point, Open label means that the subjects all knew the treatments were they were receiving, so they weren't blinded, and that there was no placebo control. And non-inferiority means that if the results are positive, so to speak, we can only make claims that the observed outcomes are no worse than standard interventional treatment, but not about the superiority of conservative management over interventional therapy. This is an important but often overlooked point with respect to non-inferiority trials. Inclusion criteria for the study was individuals 15 to 50 years of age with a unilateral spontaneous primary pneumothorax of 32% or more on chest radiography. These authors did not specify gender for inclusion and exclusion. Importantly, this was a randomized study, which means individuals were allocated to treatment and control conditions randomly. In this instance, they used an urn randomization approach, which we've used successfully at UMass on many occasions. The randomization was stratified by site, which is done to reduce the type 1 error rate or false positive rate, and improve statistical power for studies with less than 400 subjects, all criteria that this study hit. In their power analysis, the authors wrote that it would require 274 patients be randomized in order for the study to be powered at 95% with a two-sided alpha of 0.05 to be able to detect a non-inferiority margin of minus 9%. A non-inferiority margin is just the delta or the change between groups. In other words, it is the difference below the standard treatment we are willing to accept conservative treatment. In this instance, just observation in comparison to interventional drainage, after which we would claim inferiority to the traditional interventional protocol. Perhaps better stated, if the conservative approach turns out to produce results 9.2% lower than those demonstrated in the intervention arm, we would conclude conservative management to be inferior to interventional treatment. If, on the other hand, the conservative management arm produced results, say, 8.9% lower than the intervention arm, than the interventional arm, I should say. We would conclude that these data showed conservative management to be non-inferiority, infer, inferior to the intervention. I'm never going to be able to say that word correctly, non-inferiority. <laughs> um, note, however, that by dint of the research design for this study, if the conservative management group somehow produces results that exceed the standard interventional arm, we would not be able to conclude that intervention treatment is inferior to conservative management or that conservative management is superior to intervention, 
That is what a non-inferiority study is. Cross-checking this power analysis myself in G-Power indeed shows that they would likely find themselves with a beta of 95% with this number of subjects. If I ever say beta and you're not sure what I mean, beta means statistical power. Alpha is the type 1 error rate. Beta is the power analysis, uh, the, the statistical power or the likelihood of producing true, excuse me, the likelihood of observing a true effect. Their effect size would be around a Cohen's D of 0.44, which is a moderately high effect size. In the end, it turns out that there were only 256 participants analyzed out of the required 274. But this brings the attainable effect size and power to 0.44 and 0.93-ish in a perfect world. And so this is actually not, not only not a big deal, it's actually pretty remarkable. Otherwise, from what I could gather, the remainder of the statistical analysis plan looked good, except that I'm not sure what method, if any, they used to assess multiple comparisons upon post hoc analyses. Of note, they used logistic regression analyses as well as absolute and relative risk differences to generate the between-group changes described in the results. The primary outcome for this study was complete radiographic resolution, or, quote, full lung re-expansion on chest x-ray, end quote, within eight weeks post-randomization, as determined by the treating physician. The authors mentioned later in one of these sections that radiologists who were reading some of the follow-up scans were less likely to ascribe resolution than the treating clinicians were, which makes intuitive sense, so in a way... I sort of wished that the authors had decided to allow the radiologists to be the end-all determiners of resolution, as it were, to reduce bias further. But in the end, I'm sure that the clinicians managing the cases were doing just fine. This seems a bit nitpicky, but I acknowledged the opportunity for bias to creep in there. As I alluded to, of the original 315 participants randomized at the outset when these data were analyzed, there were 256 participants still engaged in the study. However, this doesn't really change the power or effect estimates, effect size estimates that much, at least not enough to matter in my opinion. However, what is incredibly important, and which we'll touch on momentarily, is laid out on page 408 in the primary outcomes section when the authors describe their complete case analysis. Essentially, because some of the data were missing at the eight-week follow-up visit, and as the authors duly note in their limitations section, they did not originally specify how they would handle missing radiographic data at each time point in their analysis plan, this complete case analysis only handed those data they had in hand, only uh, handled those data they had in hand after the eight-week window. This makes their initial analyses described here what's called a per-protocol analysis versus the original intention-to-treat analysis. Basically, the way they did it here introduces more bias and has a tendency to overestimate the effect, inflating the false discovery and type 1 error rates. So, I mean, what's the big deal with this really? As you'll see, this significantly influenced the results of the present study. When all the data were reanalyzed, as though an intention-to-treat analysis were being done. Initially, with the per-protocol analysis and ignoring the missing data altogether, the between-group delta between ob observation and intervention was just 
minus 4.1% at the eight-week follow-up, with the lower bound of the 95% confidence interval less than the negative 9% delta margin required for successful non-inferiority outcome to be determined. However, once missing data were introduced as and treated as failures or yeah, as being failures as opposed to just omitting the analyses altogether, the non-inferiority margin jumped to a mean negative 11% delta, which is, of course, lower than the negative 9% required maximum change to be within the acceptable margin. It could be the case, and there are some reasonable thoughts provided in the discussion section below, that should these limitations have been appropriately planned for prior and adjustments made or what have you, these completed case analyses could hold up in future studies or perhaps larger trials. That said, the major issue here, given the null results demonstrated once all the data were included post hoc, I believe the only logical conclusions the authors can reliably make here are the statements they make about the between group differences in adverse event rates. I want to offer credit where credit is due. The authors did a really good job of sorting out their limitations in all their gory detail, and I commend them for being forthright. However, they do in the end conclude that, quote, this trial provides modest evidence that conservative management was non-inferior to interventional management for radiographic resolution of moderate to large primary spontaneous pneumothorax within eight weeks, end quote which is really only true insofar as it held up prior to the reinstatement of the remainder of the data at the eight-week time point. Let us also not forget that this is the first study of its kind and more research is needed to follow this up. It could very well be the case that conservative management is non-inferior to invasive drainage. It could also be the case that these authors demonstrated at specific time intervals that there may be even preliminary evidence for this effect. But little more at this point can be said besides the astounding, if not unsurprising, fact that between arms, adverse events are a whopping 50% higher in the intervention arm than the observation arm. So I guess my ultimate takeaway is this. While I will leave the speculations to those with more pulmonary knowledge than I have, I suggest that we need more confirmatory research to conclude anything with confidence, but that it is a pretty powerful thing to know that the so-called watch-and-wait approach in such a scary situation could potentially be an equally viable option to the more invasive procedural approaches more commonly performed. Thank you for listening to Clinical Appraisal. If you really enjoyed this episode, please rate it five stars on iTunes and share this channel with your pals in healthcare. If you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. Finally, I do this show because it helps me learn and not because I like to pretend to be the expert on these topics. My objective is simply to grow as a clinician researcher and promote this content for other like-minded people. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time.